Good morning. My name is Adam, and the Old Testament reading can be found in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 11. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Haven't I told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may not be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all its companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Linda, and the New Testament reading is found in Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and almighty are your deeds, O Lord, God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larry. Please stand for the gospel reading. Found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this is the fourth and final week of this series on Advent, although next week we'll add one more reflection. 
Um, but this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And for those of you, if you're like me, this is a relatively new thing, perhaps uh, observing this season and marking it as such, as marking it as Advent. Uh, I say this each Sunday, but it's probably worth repeating. Advent isn't a holier word for the Christmas season or the holidays. or This isn't like the antidote on the, for the war against Christmas or anything like that. Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas. And so traditionally, by the way, the Christian calendar sort of works, Christmas begins on the 25th and then goes 12 days. So if, you know, if you want to have little gifts and things that you do for 12 days, you could from the 25th all the way to January 5th. But Advent, the the, the weeks leading up to it are really meant to help us prepare our hearts. If this really is about the arrival of the king, then there's a sense in which we've got to prepare ourselves and to say, okay, Lord, how do we long for you and prepare for you and wait for you? And the word Advent simply means arrival. And so in a very real sense, every time we celebrate Advent, we're not just looking back to the the manger and saying, thank you, God, for arriving then, but we're also looking ahead and saying, God, bring the fullness of your arrival. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven And this is why Advent can be such a rich time because, you know, when we just think about the happy, cheery holidays, for many of us, that's great. But for some of us, it's painful. It's painful because you're thinking about losses in your life or you're thinking about certain sadness, maybe estranged relationships or family relationships. And so when you just say, oh, this is just the fun, happy time of year, the most wonderful time of the year, that may be true for some of you, but it may leave the rest of us feeling empty and feeling hollow. But when we say, you know, Advent is this time to long and cry out for the fullness of Christ's arrival, that brings together both the joy of waiting and the groaning of waiting. Does that make sense? It allows us to sort of hold both things together to say, joy to the world, the Lord is come, and to say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. It allows both people to sit in church together, the ones who are saying, yes, you've come, and the ones who are saying, Lord, even so, come quickly. Advent allows us to put both of those things together. Now, this series, Beauty from Ashes, we've, we've kind of explored some of the, uh, the angles of this time of waiting. So in week one, we said, what do we do while we're waiting? We talked about working and watching while we're waiting. And then in week two, we talked about what God is doing while we're waiting. And that really there's peace that can reign in our hearts because God's working even while we're waiting. And then last week was this this thing of how God so often breaks in on the scene, that joy is surprising. It comes when we least expect it. Today, I want to turn our attention to kind of one more angle of this, and that is to say, what do we do when we see his appearing? What do we do when his arrival when we get a glimpse of his arrival and we get a glimpse, our eyes are all of a sudden opened and we say, Jesus, this is you, you're working. How do we respond? So far, we've talked about kind of the obvious characters that show up in the Christmas story, right? We've talked about Mary and her waiting. We've talked about um, Simeon and Anna who were waiting in the temple and all of a sudden he says, okay, now I've seen your salvation. I can go in peace. Last week, we talked about the shepherds. But do you know, there's at least one person who should have been there 
who should be part of all of our little nativity sets, but he's not. He should be on every postcard, on every Christmas card. He should, be, he should have a prominent place in all of our Christmas plays. Instead, he's either absent or he's the bad guy. You know who I'm talking about. Herod. Herod, the king of the Jews, could have been the one to welcome in the birth of Jesus. He could have been the one that said, this is it. I've just been a forerunner. He could have been like a John the Baptist type of figure that said, my kingship is just a signpost to the real kingship, and then stepped aside. Instead, that's not, <laughs> that's not the image of Herod that we have. We have stories of Her Herod as being this this cruel, tyrannical figure that was heavy-handed. And yet here's a guy who was in the right place. He was on the throne. And he had the right things at his disposal. He had wise, you know, people who could kind of read the signs. And yet this was a guy who interpreted Jesus' arrival, or received it rather, as a threat. Matthew 2, we'll hear the first three verses again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod at this point should have said, Me too. Me too. I want to worship him. But instead, verse 3 says, and Her When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this is Herod. It, it, what could have been an invitation to worship was instead the feeling of being threatened. Oh, who's this? What's going on? And maybe it's worth kind of hitting the pause button and doing the prequel, the flashback kind of thing, you know, to say, who is Herod? What's the story of this guy? Why was he troubled? Why was he threatened? Okay, so here's a little bit about Herod. Herod's father, first of all, was a weak but very manipulative king and high priest. And he sought help from Rome. This was back before Rome was fully in power. Rome was this rising power in the east. And Herod's dad kind of said, hey, if I hitch my wagon to their horse, we're going to go far. And so he begins to sort of make these political alliances. Each Roman leader, all the way up to Julius Caesar, gave Herod's dad a sacred and respected role among the Jews. They made him the high priest. You have to remember that the Jews, the people of God, were being overrun. They didn't have independence. They briefly had independence during this period of the Hanukkah, and then, and then it, the, the season that the Hanukkah celebrates, and then they were overrun again. And so Herod's dad is kind of scheming and saying, maybe if I cozy up to the right people, they'll give me some privileges. And so they said, okay, we'll make you high priest. You kind of do this stuff. And then as part of his master plan, Herod's dad got Herod at 25 to be named the governor of Galilee. 25 years old. He would have made Time Magazine's, you know, top stars under 30 kind of list or whatever. Governor of Galilee at 25. And what does young Herod do? Herod impresses the Roman rulers with the two things they value the most. He collected great taxes and he suppressed any uprisings. Any good empire appreciates a local ruler who can do those two things, generate revenue and keep the peasants quiet. Herod was great at that as a governor. 
And when, you know, a little bit of the Rome history intrigue here, when Cassius and Brutus murder Julius Caesar, all of a sudden they ally, they ally with Herod, the younger. And Herod's saying, okay, look, I'm going to help you. I'm going to plot for you. But Cassius and Brutus lose to Antony and Octavian. You guys maybe recall this somewhere? When Cassius was defeated by Antony, Herod then switches teams. He says, you know, I'm gonna, uh, actually, I'm going to ally with these guys. Just kidding. Sort of this double agent thing. You get the sense that Herod was always good at scheming. That really Herod only cared about one person, Herod. Herod knew how to work the system even when the systems changed. Eventually, Antony and Octavian and the Roman Senate anoint Herod as king of Judea. Now, it didn't matter that he was really a puppet king. It didn't matter that they were pulling the strings through him. As far as he was concerned, he was the king of the Jews. And he had gotten to this place by a lot of scheming. Some historians, when they mark Herod's life, they say there's this first period that was all about consolidation, all about bringing it all together. Then he had prosperity from 25 B.C. to about 12 B.C. And then there was this period right before Jesus' birth that some historians called domestic troubles. What were these domestic troubles, you say? (laughs) Well, he wrote six different wills changing his succession plan each time. Why? Because he had 10 different wives who each had sons. And each wanted their boy to be the next king of the Jews. And Herod was so threatened by each of them that he kept changing the succession plan. This sounds like, you know, not too different from the power brokers of our culture saying, oh, just kidding, actually I'm going to do this, actually I'm going to reorganize this way. And nothing is done with the next person in mind. Everything is done with preservation in mind. Herod is the kind of ruler that schemed and clawed and climbed to get the throne that he had, and he wasn't about to be dethroned. And so some wise magi come and say, there's a star in the east. We think it means the the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's saying, are you kidding me? I've changed my will six times so, so that nobody knows who the next king of the Jews is. And you're telling me there's some sign in the sky saying it? No, no, no. We've got to end this. Herod's response to Jesus' arrival was to cling to control. Herod's response to Jesus' arrival was to cling to control, to say, nope, I'm not going to let this happen. He was threatened, undermined. And then verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him word that I too may come and worship him, liar. (laughs) And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I love this. Herod falls apart at the news. The Magi fall down and worship. It's different, isn't it? And then opening their their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And of course, we all know frankincense is the most expensive of all the essential oils. No essential oil people here? Yeah, come on, folks. Just threw that in just for you. 
Um, <laughs> and these magi come and they worship with their expensive gifts. The magi's response to Jesus' arrival was to bow in worship. To bow in worship. Herod falls apart at the news, saying, No, no, who is this king? There's no way there's someone else that's going to, no one's going to dethrone me. The magi say, the magi fall down. Say, oh, we're, we're going to worship. And we've got gifts that we're going to bring. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew's narrative, the Jewish, the pseudo-Jewish king tries to murder and the pagan astrologers come and worship? You think Matthew's trying to foreshadow the rebellion of his people? I think he is. He's saying, look, you hard-hearted people, you're clinging to something, and even the Gentiles can see something surprising is going on. Now, when you listen to this, you say, well, well, Glenn, I, I mean, there's no way I would end up like Herod. There's no way. Because the thing is, if Jesus showed up, I would totally be one of those who would bow and worship. I would bring all of my gifts, all the essential oils. I'll bring them all, you know. <laughs> I'm coming to, I, I, of course I would be like the man. Of course I would be the one to bow and worship. I would never be like Herod. But you know what? There's two ways we end up like Herod. <laughs> two ways we end up like Herod. One is because Jesus has this thing about showing up in unexpected ways. <laughs> And so it doesn't always, it's not always the obvious thing that we say, oh, Jesus, you're here. It's, it's not always like church, where you're like, oh, I feel the presence of God. I'm going to worship. Of course I'm going to worship. Jesus has this thing about showing up in unexpected ways. But secondly, we have this thing about control. We like to be in control. And sometimes, sometimes our response to being dethroned is actually not worship, but anger. Anger, frustration, irritation. What are you doing? What was, why is this happening? Why isn't this working? Why is there traffic? Look at the lines. Oh, I'm so sorry the world didn't follow your script today. And all of a sudden we say, oh, I'm, I'm a little more like Herod than I cared to admit. All right, let's play a little game. I want you to find someone to turn to, face just two people, face one another. And on the count of three, I want you to do your best facial expression of anger. Are you ready? One, no, no words, no grunts or growls, just one, just a facial expression. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> this is the opposite of turn to your neighbor and smile, you know. Turn to your neighbor and show anger. <laughs> okay, how, how, how many of you, in your facial expression of anger, how many of you narrowed your eyes a little bit? You narrowed your eyes. Now, you probably couldn't do this because this was fake anger, but how many of you, you were, if you're really good, you got your heart rate to elevate just a little bit? Uh, any, uh, all right. Now, this is what's interesting is physiologically our response to anger is to narrow our eyes and and they say whoever they is they say this is so that we can focus in on the imminent danger you narrow your eyes like the predator that you are 
And then your heart rate elevates to get blood to the right parts of your body so that you can strike at just the right moment the ultimate warrior that you are. And psychologists will tell you that anger is a natural response to a perceived threat. So there's a good kind of anger. There's a good kind of anger when we see injustice, when we see something wrong with the world, and say, God, how can I be part of bringing healing? Now, the difference is, you know, it's like Jesus. He got angry at, at the people who were keeping down the guy with the withered hand. He got angry, and he healed. Now, if you can heal in your anger, then you know you have good anger. Okay? If you're destroying in your anger, okay, so that's a whole nother sermon. But there is a kind of anger that comes when we, we're perceiving a threat that isn't actually a threat. That we're saying, oh, why are they doing this? Why isn't this working? And, and someone says, hey, 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 you realize that this is not that big of a deal, right? You're like, yes, it is. And it's worth pausing and saying, you know what? What if anger is an alarm system that says, you are no longer in control? I'm responding this way because I'm not in control and I don't like it. Beep, 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 beep. And anger is a way of saying, it's, it's, a, it's the light on your dashboard that says, oh, oh, you're discovering that you're not in control of things and you don't like it. Right? This is our Herod moment. The moment when we say, ah, oh, I, I don't get to make life work in a perfectly, you know, symmetrical way. Let's say this. When circumstances remind you that you are not in control, you can perceive it as a threat or you can receive it as an invitation to surrender to the one who is. We're going to leave this up there for a moment. Just think about this. Now, I'm clearly not talking about real threats where you're in danger and someone is, there's an abusive situation, a manipulative, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those situations in life where you realize, I wanted to impose my will on something and it didn't work. And the Spirit of God is saying, okay, so you can perceive this as a threat to your throne, Herod, or you can receive this as an invitation to surrender to the one who actually is the king. So, well, I, I, I don't know. what. So here's a, a lighthearted example, perhaps, okay? And you can keep this up so we can keep thinking about this sentence. Uh, a couple weeks ago, as we were getting ready for Advent, you know, Holly and I were talking. We had these things planned. We, Holly even wrote this nice blog of some practices we would try to do. And first couple weeks, it's going okay. We're, we're reading this, you know, Advent devotional, we're lighting the candles, we're making ornaments, and then, you know, life has this way of not following your script, you know, and there's a little more chaos, and then all of a sudden, for the last 10 days or so, different ones of our kids have been sick, and so she's home today with the two little ones, and it's just knocked everything off, everything off. We were going to bake cookies and take them to the neighbors. We were going to serve a meal at the rescue mission. We were going to go caroling at a, you know, we were going to all these things. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, nope, it's not happening. And we're scrambling at the last minute to get ready for your know, family who just came in yesterday. Any of you that describe your December at all? And in those moments, we were just talking, we we're like, oh, this is so frustrating. And of course, we, we know we have... Um, 
spirited conversations in those highly stressful times. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and you realize in those moments, why am I feeling this rising? Oh, it's because I'm reacting to the feeling of life not following the script I wanted it to. And you can perceive this as a threat to say, ah, or you can say, Lord, is, could this be an invitation for me to just take a deep breath and surrender to you again? And to say, okay, Lord, how are you here? Are you showing up in the midst of this? Are you arriving in the midst of this? Can I bow down and worship in the midst of this? Now, I'm not saying to you that we had this conversation and then we just turned on the CD player and we're like, oh, hallelujah. No, it's not, it doesn't work like that. But it does help you think about your heart and just say, okay, Lord, how, how can I change the way I'm looking at this? My spiritual director, the person I see about once a month and have seen every month this year just about, he's begun talking to me about these these places of, of friction or irritation or frustration in my own life and to say, Glenn, is there an invitation there? And I always get mad at him when he says that. Because I'm like, no, no, I'm telling you this so that you can tell me that I'm right and they're wrong. And he's like, no, but is there an invitation here? And I'm slow, but I'm getting it. And I'm realizing that those are invitations to surrender my throne. Those are invitations to recognize that I'm clinging to control where what I need to do is come and fall down and bring my gifts to the Lord and to say, Lord, this is not, uh, this is not a great situation here. This is not how I would have scripted it, but can I come and bow? Can I come and surrender? Can I come and trust that you're arriving? See, the beautiful thing about this king that we worship, this isn't a king who comes with a heavy fist. Jesus isn't the king that manipulated his way to a throne. Jesus is the king who laid down his life. Jesus is the king who was born to die. Jesus is the king who put thorns on as a crown. Jesus is the king who took the cross as his throne. Jesus is the king who gave everything to rescue and redeem. When you bow down to this king, you're not surrendering to an abusive tyrant. You're saying yes to the loving God who came to give you his life. And that makes all the difference in the world. That makes all the difference in the world. So this isn't a message that says, just blindly submit. Just go ahead and surrender. God is all-powerful. This is the surprising good news that the God who is coming to reign came to reign by washing your feet and laying down his life and taking your place and carrying on himself all your sin and all my sin and all the shame and all that is wrong in the world. This is the king who conquered by losing this is the king who rescues by dying. And so when the Magi come and bring their gifts, they couldn't have known that they were not the ones actually bringing the gift. Jesus himself was offering 
the greatest gift of all to the world. Church, when we come in those moments and we say, okay, I take this aggravation and I'll take this as an opportunity, as an invitation to say, God, I surrender. Actually, you're not giving up anything. You're gaining all of it. You're gaining life. You're gaining the riches of the love of God. The response to God's surprising salvation is not to cling to control, but to surrender in worship. Because it's there that you find Jesus to be everything that you need. Amen? Did you bow your heads this morning? Maybe some of you are in a place where you're thinking about the things that you're still gripping and grasping and hanging on to. And maybe this morning is a good time for the Holy Spirit to say, hey, don't make the mistake that Herod made. Don't make the mistake of hanging on to your throne. Come and bow down. Come and fall down. Come and lay down your life, your jobs, your families, your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments, your fears, your hurts, your wounds. Come and lay it all down. Bring it all to him. And let this king be the greatest gift of all. Let this king bring his gentle, loving reign into your heart. Would you quietly where you are begin to just welcome that?